It's great to see you all here this morning. Thank you for joining us. Those of you joining us online, it's also great to welcome you to be a part of our worship together this morning. I thought Micah and the team did great. I love uh, that new song they did, uh, Doxology, at the beginning. So, yeah, the three of you that share that with me, thank you. Um, but, uh, okay, I would switch to decaf, okay? I think uh, maybe a problem there, okay? Uh, in all seriousness, before we jump in to our talk this morning, uh, I felt the need to speak here just for a moment. Thursday, uh, war broke out in Eastern Europe when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. I think many people were expecting that for weeks, maybe if not more so months, uh, over the last several months. Um, and war, however you look at it, it's, it's just hard and it's bad. Um, and it has a ripple effect, not just for that region, but for the entire world. And I'm not here to solve any of that. But I think as people of faith, we should pray. And I want to do that this morning. Uh, remember, the children is one of our mission partners. They are in Romania. That is one of the border uh, countries to Ukraine. And they are already, uh, they have started receiving refugees from Ukraine, people trying to flee the conflict they have teams right now at the border with uh, food and water for those who have needing, are needing assistance uh, leaving that country. I don't want to encourage you to pray for remember the children over the next several weeks and months. Uh, we are going to be sending financial resources to help uh, that partner of ours, so uh, just want to let you be aware of that. Also, tomorrow night at 6.30, our elders are going to be leading a prayer time in Theater 990, which is directly behind the back of our stage, the other side of that. We have a room called Theater 990, and we're going to be in there at 6.30 tomorrow night. We invite you to come to pray with us. We're going to be praying for, obviously, the nations involved here, but also leaders, our leaders, uh, our our uh, servicemen who are stationed with NATO in various places in Eastern Europe. And so we invite you to be a part of that. All that being said, I want to just take a few minutes for us to pray and ask God to be at work in this. And so will you join me in prayer? Lord, we are grateful that you love us. And your word says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And God, we know when you make a sacrifice like that, we know how much you love us. And we know that we have brothers and sisters in Ukraine and other parts of Europe that right now are under tremendous duress, uh, some for their very lives. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would be there to comfort those. I pray for those who are fleeing from war, conflict, from the possibility of losing their own lives. And I ask God that you would watch over them and comfort them. I pray for those who are defending their country or those who are from the U.S. who are there as part of the NATO forces to provide security and protection. And I pray, God, for our soldiers as well, that you would protect them. God, I pray for Remember the children and other agencies that are helping care for refugees, those who are hurting. I pray, God, that you would be their supply. Use us to be a part of that. 
Lord, I ask for our leaders that you would uh, give wisdom and courage to do what is right. Lord, you are the sovereign Lord. Your word echoes that throughout the pages of the Bible. And we trust you. I pray that you will protect your people who are in harm's way and those who are the innocent ones who may not have a way out. God, we pray for an end to this war. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was uh, a junior high kid, I got the ambitious uh, idea that I would read the Bible through in a year. And uh, I knew the Bible was filled with all kinds of important things, and it was important to read the Bible, but I couldn't tell you back then why that was the case. But I set out to do it, and I started in Genesis like you know, where else do you start when you're reading the Bible through? You start at the beginning, right? And I started Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And, you know, I was reading four or five chapters a night, and I don't think I was three weeks into it. I got behind. And then I hit, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, I always thought of that as the La Brea Tar Pits of Bible reading. I mean, you go in there, but very few come out, right? And so I didn't understand what I was reading. And before long, I eventually gave up. I just quit. A few years later, I found myself a freshman in Bible college, and I was actually studying the Bible as, as the focus of what we were there for. It wasn't just a book we read or we carried on Sunday, but it was actually the focus of everything. And it wasn't long after I was there. It was my sophomore year. I took a Greek class where I was actually studying the Gospel of John in the original text. And that was amazing to me. Now, I wasn't, it was really hard, and I wasn't very good at Greek. Uh, you probably didn't know that because I'm so gifted with it here. But uh, the truth is, I, I struggled. I had to work really, really hard at it, but I did pass. And, but I found this amazing new avenue of learning and understanding the message that God has for us in his word. And it started to come alive for me. In the summer of my sophomore year, though, it's that moment where the rubber meets the road, as the saying goes, where I started working as a youth minister. And I'd never written a, a lesson before in my life. I'd never written a sermon before in my life, except for one that I used the summer before traveling with the school. But it was only about an eight-minute sermon, you know. My first boss said, there's... No such thing as a bad short sermon. So eight minutes, I mean, that thing was awesome, right? No matter what it said, people were like, wow, it's over. That's amazing. Praise the Lord, right? But when I started doing ministry, I was now having to put into practice what I was learning. I quickly realized that learning what God had to say from the Bible was one thing. But being able to put it into a context that people could understand it was a whole nother thing. It was about 15 years or so ago, and convinced me to go through all these old files that I had. I mean, I had these plastic container, file containers. I think we had like five or six of them. I don't remember. And they were in a, you know, taking up space. She said, let's go through and consolidate. And so we went through all these, all the, all the stuff that predated computers, right? Because now I was saving electronically, but all that stuff... And as I was reading through it, I mean, some of it was good, but let's be honest, the early stuff, most of it was bad. Even in my mind, some of the sermons, I thought, man, that was awesome. And I went back and read through it, and I go, yeah, <laughs> not so awesome. Uh, 
Coming this May, I will actually finish my 40th year in ministry. It's hard to believe. I mean, you look at me. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, thank you very much. But you look at me and you go, 40 years? No. I mean, you're way too young looking. Uh, You will see a picture. Did you see that picture of me that was up here? Jet black hair. Did you see that? There it is. Yeah. Yeah, who is that? That's right. <laughs> That's me before ministry hit me, okay? <laughs> Coming this May, I will finish my 40th year, and I've been reflecting on that. And uh, man, God has been so faithful and so good through all 40 years. Uh, some have been great, some have not, not so great. But I've realized that when it came to preaching and teaching, I did some things good. And then I did some things that, eh, not so good. You know, I, I, I did some things that were good and I did some things that were not so good. And even when I realize I give my very best effort, we don't always end up with the results that I wanted. And hopefully, I've learned from both the good and the bad efforts. Well, today, our text kind of rotates around that idea. Sometimes we do good, sometimes we don't. But hopefully in the process we learn, and there is a moment where we can learn what really matters, really truly matters. Our text today is found in Mark, the eighth chapter. If you want to open your Bible or your phone or tablet or whatever you're using, verse 27 to the end of the chapter, that's, verse, that's 11 verses we're gonna look at this morning. In this text, we see Peter, who's one of my favorite people in the New Testament. He gets it right. I mean, and then he gets it wrong. I mean, he really had one of those like days that was a, a contrast in life. He gets maybe the best day ever, and then it, before it was over, it was the worst day ever. And then we find Jesus who gives his followers a lesson on what it means to follow him. We're talking about being a disciple of Jesus today. The story in our text is actually the climax of the first half of Mark's gospel. As we read a few weeks ago, verse one in chapter one, the very first verse in this gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, But the disciples have yet to come to that conclusion. But they're gonna state that they believe it today. Upon, up up to this point, excuse me, only supernatural beings knew who Jesus' true identity was. They were the only ones. Jesus had revealed his identity through his teaching about the kingdom of God, but I don't think many people realized it. There's no indication that anybody picked up on it. He revealed his identity through his miraculous powers over nature and demons and disease and even death. But he hadn't publicly proclaimed his position that he was the Messiah. He hadn't done that yet. But we've reached Mark chapter eight and it's here that Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the spokesman for the 12 in this moment. And this marks a significant turning point in Jesus' work with his disciples. So without any further delay, let's look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 28. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. When Jesus asked his disciples who people said that he is, the disciples' description echoed the opinion that was expressed just a couple chapters earlier in Mark chapter 6. What was happening there was King Herod had been hearing about Jesus. Jesus had been healing people. He'd been teaching, and he was a very engaging teacher. He was even casting out demons. So Herod asks this question about who Jesus is. Mark talks about it in in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. He says, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And remember, Herod was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. So that probably sent just a little shiver down his spine when people were saying, hey, they think it's John the Baptist back from the dead. What? He said, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. This seems to be the common explanation, both in chapter 6 and now here in chapter 8, that Jesus is a great prophet, even maybe one of the greatest prophets, like John the Baptist or Elijah, who's come back from the dead. It's striking that in both of these instances, the public speculation doesn't include the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah, that just doesn't seem to register with anybody. Then we read this in verse 29. But what about you, Jesus? This is Jesus who's asking, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. It feels like Jesus gives the guys a pop quiz, you know? Remember in elementary school, the teacher goes, pop quiz. He gives them one question. Who do you say I am? I know what all these other people are saying. We've heard it for months now. But who do you guys think I am? Who do you say that I am? Maybe Jesus is just checking to see what they've learned over the course of the tutorial that they've been on with him. Or maybe he's trying to encourage them to think deeper than they've been thinking. It's not really a surprise that it's Peter who then answers first. But what is surprising is that Peter nails the answer. He gets a dead solid right, big gold star on his pop quiz. Speaking for the group, Peter answered, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. He's identifying Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah who would reign over the coming kingdom of God. I want you to think about this question for a minute. Does what you believe about Jesus make any real difference in your life? Does what you believe about Jesus, does it influence any aspect of your life? How would you answer the question if Jesus asked you, who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your Lord and Savior? Or is he just kind of your Savior? Do you see him as one who gives directions and wisdoms and how to live this life and get the most out of this life for the kingdom of God? Or do you see him as kind of your go-to guy when you... You know, a crisis hits your life. That's all the way you see him. Is he your king of kings, or do you see him more like a genie in a lamp? How do you see Jesus? And does it make any real difference in your life? Many people 
have accepted a version of Jesus that doesn't accurately represent who he is. In fact, some have crafted a version of Jesus to fit what they want him to be, more savior, less Lord, more showing up when I have a need, less telling me how to live my life. Are you following the Jesus that we've met in the Bible? Or are you following a version of Jesus that is much different than that? If we follow Jesus on our own terms, we will end up without a connection to him. We can't make up a version of Jesus that suits us and think that we're gonna have this relationship with him. So when Jesus asked the 12, who do you say that I am? I mean, they'd spent a lot of time with him. He was looking to see if they had realized that he actually was the Messiah. Had they seen enough? The disciples spent most of every day with Jesus for months and months, and yet it took them a while before they realized who he was. He was the Messiah that the prophets had predicted. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we do good. That's the case here for Peter. He answers Jesus' question and he's spot on. You are the Messiah. He is right. And I'm really glad for Peter that he got it right. I, I root for him in scripture because he's usually speaking when he shouldn't be. He's putting his foot in his mouth when he should have just, you know, been silent. But in this moment, apparently he's been adding things up and he comes to this conclusion or maybe the 12 have been having discussions and they finally agreed together. But however Peter arrived at his answer, he concluded that Jesus is the Messiah. And for all the times that Peter talked when he should have remained silent, this time he got it right. Sometimes we get it right. Verse 30, Mark writes, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You guys are right, but you can't say anything about it. Although Peter got the identification correct, Jesus directs the disciples not to tell anyone about this information. This isn't the first time, though, that Jesus has required the news that he's the Messiah or the Son of God to be kept secret. Jesus ordered demons. Every time he cast out a demon, they would say, Jesus, Son of the Most High, and he'd say, quiet. And he would silence them. When Jesus was on the mountain and there was the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, he told them, don't say anything to anybody about what you've seen here until after my resurrection. You see, we're not clear why Jesus wanted no one to know at this time, but One might suggest that Jesus wanted the information about who he was, the Messiah, to be kept secret until people could see it in light of the cross. The cross changes everything. You see, it's only through the cross that one can truly understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This passage marks the beginning of a new phase in Jesus' teaching to his disciples. It's here now he begins to teach them about his death, 
and his resurrection. They've learned a lot about who he is and how he fits the narrative of the the, uh, Messiah. But these disciples have a lot more to learn. They need to learn about his mission and why he came. In Galilee, Jesus had constant conflict with two groups, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. In verse 31, the focus shifts for just a moment to these religious authorities in Jerusalem. These authorities were the Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin, and it was made up of three groups, the teachers of the law, sometimes called scribes. These guys were professional interpreters and teachers of the Old Testament law. They were made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, the three sects of the Jewish faith. The majority of the scribes mentioned in the Bible are Pharisees. The second group are called the chief priests, and they were probably the leading figures of the Sanhedrin. They were most likely the former high priests and members of the priestly nobility from which the high priests were chosen from. These are the guys in charge. And then the third group, the final group, are the elders. These were powerful laymen from aristocratic families. Together, these three groups made up the Sanhedrin Council. And when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, it was these groups that became his chief adversaries. And eventually, they would have him arrested, tried, and executed through crucifixion. These were the guys who were responsible for that. Though you know, they made the call, but it was our sin that really did it. Verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He spoke plainly. He's talking about his death and resurrection. He spoke plainly. He didn't use parables like he had been using when he taught the crowds. He's very clear. That's what, that's what, Peter, or that's what Mark is saying here. He was speaking only to his disciples at this time. The the crowd as a whole is not part of this conversation. He wanted his disciples to understand what was about to happen because it's important to understanding his mission. This new topic, it was a lot for the 12 to take in. Suffering, rejection, death. These were not what the disciples thought they signed up for when they agreed to follow Jesus. So Peter, he took Jesus aside privately Mark tells us, and he rebuked him. Pretty gutsy. Pull the rabbi aside and tell him that he's wrong, dead wrong. I imagine that Peter's rebuke went something like this. Come on, Jesus. You gotta knock this nonsense off. We are not gonna let anything like that happen to you. I don't know if Peter saw himself as his bodyguard. I mean, he was a big, from what we understand, a rugged fisherman. He'd made his life on the Sea of Galilee, and here he comes and he says, you gotta knock this off. That's not gonna happen to you. We won't allow that. It seems that Peter reacts emotionally to Jesus' announcement and he's gonna, that Jesus is gonna be killed. Peter's focus was that he would do whatever he could so that Jesus wouldn't suffer, and certainly so that Jesus wouldn't be killed. 
Peter isn't just bloviating here. He isn't just blowing smoke to try to impress Jesus. This is who he is. And we see it later. We see it later when Peter and Jesus and the disciples are in the garden praying. And Judas shows up with some soldiers. John records this in John chapter 18, verse 10. This is what he says. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter wanted Jesus to know that he wouldn't allow him any harm to come to him. The bigger picture, though, is missed by everybody here. And that is that almost no one recognized or observed the Old Testament passages that indicated the Messiah would suffer. Somehow they seemed to just gloss over those. There were various ideas about what the Messiah might be, but all of them were glorious and powerful. The 12 disciples, having concluded that Jesus was the Messiah, must have been expecting him to assume this royal authority over an earthly kingdom. In fact, later in chapter 10, we're gonna see that Mark records how the brothers James and John lobbied Jesus for the seats of honor in his kingdom. You see, when a king was on his throne, the two most important seats in all of the kingdom were first on the king's right and then secondly on the king's left. And James and John are there saying in Mark's, in Mark's uh, narrative, why don't you give us these seats? Instead, Jesus' predictions were completely opposite of what the disciples expected. Then we read this in verse 33. Maybe one of the most powerful verses in this, in this narrative. Second, maybe only to verse 34, he says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, private conversation, now he's including the disciples, he rebuked Peter. And look what he says. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In response to Peter's rebuke, Jesus publicly rebuked Peter in front of the other 12. And his language is extraordinarily strong. Jesus points out that Peter's plan came from Satan's influence in his life, not from God. Peter was focusing on the interests of men. He's not focused on the interests of God. Nobody asked, why do you have to go through that? What's the whole point of that? They just made this decision, and they said, that is not happening to you. And Jesus says, you are so far off base, Peter. Although this exchange between Peter and Jesus were focused on, Peter focused on Jesus and Jesus focused on Peter, It's likely that Peter's rebuke, like his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, represented the opinion of the other 12 disciples. Sometimes we get it right, you are the Messiah, and sometimes we get it wrong. It's never gonna happen to you, Jesus. I promise you. Sometimes we mean well, but we aren't operating in faith As in Peter's case, at times we're acting out of our human instincts and not the concerns of God. Nobody's perfect. Jesus, the rest of us, we're not. So sometimes we're gonna get it right and sometimes we're gonna get it wrong. 
But what happens next is really important because Jesus gives a teaching as to what, what it really means to follow him. He answers this question. What does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? You see, for a while, the disciples misunderstood the very nature of why Jesus was here and his position, but then they come to understand who he is. He is the Messiah. But now, because they understand that, Jesus pivots, and he starts to to teach them so that they can understand clearly the nature of what it means to be a disciple. They understand he's the Messiah. Now, what does it mean to follow the Messiah? As loyal followers, the 12 expected to support Jesus in his rise to royal rule and then to serve him as dignitaries in his kingdom. Jesus wants them to know what it actually means to be his disciple. Peter got it right when he confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and then he got it wrong by rebuking Jesus. And now it's time to put all this together to make sense of it. It's time to learn the truth. And Jesus gives a key teaching for everyone who follows or chooses to follow him. In the following verses, Jesus shares the expectation that he has for his disciples. This section might be tough because I think Jesus is gonna set the bar a little higher then maybe our version of Jesus might set it. He's not asking you to be perfect. He's just showing you what it takes to follow him. Mark wanted to say, what Mark wanted to say to his readers, I think is found in this section. And what God, the central idea of what God wants modern readers to understand may very well be what we're about to read. So let's look at verse 34. I think one of the most pivotal verses in the entire New Testament. He says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. At this point, Jesus turns to teach not only his disciples, but also the crowds. This verse is, as I said, one of the key verses on discipleship in the entire Bible. And it's here that Jesus tells us what must happen if a man or woman or anyone wants to follow him. The first is this, he says, deny yourself, which means to surrender yourself completely to God. Deny yourself. Surrender yourself completely to God. Jesus starts by saying, deny yourselves. The Greek word here is actually a word that's a pretty strong word, meaning simply that a person must refuse to be thinking about themselves. By denying self, Jesus doesn't mean resisting specific material things. He means renouncing of oneself, ceasing to make oneself the central focus of one's life, You know, we are pretty selfish by nature because we set ourselves at the core of who we are. So denying self involves a reorientation of our life because most of us are the center of our universe. This involves putting God at the center of your life, stepping off the throne of your life and allowing Jesus 
to take up residence there. The second thing he says is take up your cross. This means to identify with Jesus in suffering and death. Jesus said to his disciples, you must take up your cross. And in Jesus' day, everyone understood the meaning when somebody talked about the cross. It was a symbol of suffering and death. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He records on one occasion the Roman soldiers who occupied Judah, the city of Jerusalem. They literally crucified 2,000 people on crosses. If you lived in Judah, you understood what it meant to be crucified. You, you understood what it meant to carry a cross. You see, to carry your cross meant that you would drag it along and eventually you would reach the place where the soldiers would crucify you. And the point Jesus is making is that you must be committed, so committed to denying yourself that you are willing to die for Jesus if you want to be his disciple. And if somebody ever told you otherwise, they may have baited you into following Jesus, but you did, they didn't give you the full details. The third thing he says is then follow me, simple. If you deny yourself, you're willing to take up your cross, pay that price, then follow me. Follow God obediently wherever he leads. Jesus added that following him once you take up that cross, was all you had to do. If a believer is truly willing to die for Jesus, they'll follow him wherever he leads them. As I was sitting in my office kind of thinking about this part of the message, I thought to myself, do I know anyone, you know, who did this? I mean, recently someone, and I started to think about a day back in 2016 when Todd Fox came into my office. Todd Fox was one of the staff guys um, here at Northeast. And he came in, he wanted to talk to me about what God was doing in him and his wife Kelly's lives, as well as the lives of two other Northeast families. Here's a picture of Todd and Kelly right here. And then this is Stephen and Sarah Little. And then this is Phil and Stephanie Smith. Three couples who had been praying that God would show them what he would have them to do because they had this sense that God was calling them to go plant a church. And of all the places that they sensed this, they were gonna go back to Phil Smith's hometown of Huntington, West Virginia. Huntington, West Virginia? Couldn't you call us to Malibu or Miami, you know? Charleston, you know? Huntington, West Virginia, he shared the vision with me, and I put him through the paces. I asked him, I said, church planning is really, really hard. You gotta be convinced that it is God's call in your life. You don't wanna step out if it's not. And when we were done, I was so convinced, saddened that they were gonna leave, but so excited about what God was doing in their lives. The following May, they stood up here on the stage and shared the vision that God had given them to go plant a church in Huntington. And we celebrated them and we, we blessed them and we prayed for them and we sent them off. And initially that church consisted of these people right here. That was day one at City Church right there. These three couples and their kids. And then they began praying for their city. 
they, they started a small group and they, that grew into what we would call a house church and they were doing baptisms on their front porch. It's pretty awesome. They served their neighbors and they got involved in the community and city church just continued to grow little by little, but consistently. And then last summer on July the 11th, they moved into their very first space, their own building. And it's amazing. There's their worship center right there. This was an old bakery that had sat in decay for five or six years, maybe even longer. Just kind of just a rundown building. And they went in and renovated most all of it themselves. And it's an awesome space. I was able to attend their first service. I didn't tell them I was coming and showed up. And they were so excited to see me. But I can tell you, I was so proud of them. I don't know why it makes me cry, because I didn't like them that much when they were here. But I am so proud of them. Constantly doing stuff that drove me crazy. But I love those guys today. I loved them then, but I love them so much today. I'm so proud to see what God has been doing. He's the blessing that I experienced to see the work of God as a result of what they were doing as his disciples who were willing, willing to answer his call and go to plant a church in Huntington, West Virginia. I can tell you there are a lot of places all around the world be a lot more exciting to go to plant a church than Huntington. But when God said to them, it's Huntington, they didn't even blink. They said, let's go. Disciples will deny themselves. They will put God in charge. They will, they will take up their cross. They will be willing to pay the price, whatever it is, and then they will follow him. They will go where God leads them. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And then Jesus says this in verses 35 through 37. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus makes a significant point here. Don't miss it. He's just clarified the expectations of being a disciple of his, and now he reveals what is at stake. If one chooses not to follow Jesus, what is at stake? Jesus makes a very dramatic point. Let me summarize it this way. There is nothing, not even the entirety of all human wealth and power that will be equal to eternal life with God. Nothing. Nothing can compensate for the loss of eternal life spent with Jesus The Apostle Paul put it this way, and I really like, he kind of summarized it, shrunk it down for us in Philippians 1.21. This is what he says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, hey, as long as I'm here, I'm gonna do everything I can to answer the call that God gives to me to be an example of Christ to the world around me. And if I die, I'm going to heaven. To die is gain. That was his life. I think that was probably Paul's mission statement, his personal mission statement. It was clear to him that nothing was more valuable than living a life for Jesus and then spending eternity with him in heaven. And then Jesus closes this whole teaching. Verse 38, he says this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them 
when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Well, you talk about going from, you know, helping them see he was the Messiah, and now they know he's the Messiah, and now he says, this is what it takes to follow me. And this is how he closes it. He says, if you're ashamed of me, when I come back, I'm gonna be ashamed of you. Some of you maybe have never heard that before. This is not an easy thing. And he's not telling you to get it right all the time and be perfect all the time. Grace is still involved. But he's saying, this is the expectation I have for people who want to follow me. The opposite of losing one's life for Jesus and the gospel is to be ashamed of Jesus and the words that he gives us. Living in a sinful world can easily lead a disciple to not deny themselves, but to deny the Lord rather than themselves. Those who are ashamed of Jesus can expect him to be ashamed of them when he returns at the 20th century, at the second coming of the 20th century. I can't even read my own handwriting. So it's wise. And it's important, I believe with all my heart, that you would decide to follow Jesus and do it very soon. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I'm gonna be right down here. I'd love to talk with you at the close of the service. Take whatever time you need. But I want you to know how much God loves you and how important it is to follow him, even if it seems tough. It's worth it all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us. Your word says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We were that important to you that you sent Jesus on a rescue mission to save us. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You did suffer and die and rose again. And you did all that to save us. Our sin separated us from you. But you came as a sacrifice that washes away sin. And for that, God, we praise you. Lord, I pray you'll inspire us to be disciples who, as Jesus described, deny themselves, take up our crosses, and follow you. Lord, I pray for faith to do that, for courage and strength for every disciple here or those who are watching online to live boldly for Jesus. And I pray for many more to step in to follow Jesus as his disciples as well. Lord, please bring the harvest, we ask in your son's precious name. Amen.